this account was written about 1873, and uh, therefore a few of the points perhaps may strike us as not quite up to date, but still it's a, it's a very fine account. When the race of Israel found itself in Chaldea, it entered once more on the great theatre of the world, which it had quitted on its exodus out of the valley of the Nile, and from which for a thousand years, with the exception of the reign of Solomon, it had been secluded among the hills of Palestine. Unlike Egypt, which still preserves to us the likeness of the scenes and sights which met the eye of Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, Babylon has more totally disappeared than any other of the great powers which once ruled the earth. Not a single architectural monument, only one single sculpture, remains of the glory of the Chaldees' excellency. Even the natural features are so transformed as to be hardly recognizable. But by a singular, singular, singular compensation, its appearance has been recorded more exactly than any of the contemporary capitals with which it might have been compared. Of Thebes, Memphis, Nineveh, Susa, no eyewitness has left us a plan or a picture. But Babylon was seen and described, not indeed in its full splendor, but still in its entirety, by the most inquisitive traveler of antiquity, within one century from the time when the Israelites were within its walls, and his accounts are corrected or confirmed by visitors who saw it yet again fifty years later, when the huge skeleton, though gradually falling to pieces, was distinctly visible. Of all the seats of empire, of all the cities that the pride or power of man has built on the surface of the globe, Babylon was the greatest. Its greatness, as it was originated, so in large measure it was secured by its natural position. Its founders took advantage of the huge spur of tertiary rock which project, projects itself from the long inclined plain of the Syrian desert into the alluvial basin of Mesopotamia, thus furnishing a dry and solid platform on which a flourishing city might rest whilst it was defended on the south by the vast morass or lake, if not estuary, extending in that remote period from the Persian Gulf. On this vantage ground it stood, exactly crossing the line of traffic between the Mediterranean coasts and the Iranian mountains. Just also on that point where the Euphrates, sinking into a deeper bed, changes from a wide expanse into a manageable river, not broader than the Thames of our own metropolis where also, out of the deep, rich alluvial clay, it was easy to dig the bricks which, from its earliest date, supplied the material for its immense buildings, cemented by the bitumen which, from that same early date, came floating down the river from the springs in its upper course. Babylon was the most majestic of that class of cities which belong almost exclusively to the primeval history of mankind. The cities, as they are called by Hegel, of the river plains, which have risen on the level banks of the mighty streams of Egypt, Mesopotamia, India, and China, and thus stand in the most striking contrast to the towns which belong to the second stage of human civilization, 
clustering each on its acropolis or its seven hills, and thus contracted and concentrated by the necessities of their local position, as obviously as those older capitals possessed from their situation an illimitable power of expansion. As of that second class, one of the most striking examples was Jerusalem on its mountain fastness, with the hills standing round it as if with a divine shelter, and fenced off by its deep ravines as by a natural fosse. So of that earlier class, the most remarkable was the city to which the newcomers suddenly found themselves transplanted. Far as the horizon itself extended the circuit of the vast capital of the then known world, if the imperceptible circumference of our modern capitals has exceeded the limits of Babylon, yet none in ancient times or modern can be compared with its definite enclosure, which was on the lowest, comp which was, which was on the lowest computation, 40, on the highest, 60 miles round. Like Nineveh or Ekbatana, it was, but on a still larger scale, a country or empire enclosed in a city. Forests, parks, gardens were intermingled with the houses so as to present rather the appearance of the suburbs of a great metropolis than the metropolis itself. Yet still the regularity and order of a city were preserved. The streets, according to a fashion rare in Europe, whether ancient or modern, but common in ancient Asia, and adopted by the Greek and Roman conquerors when they penetrated into Asia, perhaps in imitation of Babylon, were straight and at right angles to each other. The houses, unlike those of most ancient cities except at Tyre and afterwards in Rome, were three or four stories high. But the prodigious scale of the place <coughs> appeared chiefly in the enormous size, unparalleled before or since, of its public buildings and rendered more conspicuous by the flatness of the country from which they rose. Even in their decay, their colossal piles, domineering over the monotonous plain, produce an effect of grandeur and magnificence which cannot be imagined in any other situation. The walls by which this imperial city, or as it might be called, this civic empire, rising out of a deep and wide moat, was screened and protected from the wandering tribes of the desert as the celestial empire by the great wall of China, as the extremities of the Roman empire by the wall of Trajan in Dacia, or of Severus in Northumberland, were not, like those famous bulwarks, mere mounds or ramparts, but lines as of towering hills, which must have met the distant gaze at the close of every vista, like the Alban range at Rome. They appeared, at least to Herodotus, who saw them whilst in their unbroken magnificence, not less than 300 feet high, <coughs> and along their summit ran a vast terrace which admitted of the turning of chariots with four horses and which may therefore well have been <coughs> more than 80 feet broad. If to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, who were accustomed to the precipitous descent of the walls overhanging the valley of the Kidron, <coughs> the mere height of the Babylonian enclosure may not have seemed so startling as to us. Yet to the size of the other buildings, the puny dimensions, whether of the palace or temple of Solomon, bore no comparison. The great palace of the kings was itself a city within the city, seven miles round. 
and its gardens <coughs> expressly built to convey to a median princess some reminiscence of her native mountains, rose one above another <coughs> to a height of more than 70 feet on which stood forest trees of vast diameter side by side with flowering shrubs. <laughs> On the walls of the palace, the Israelites might see painted those vast hunting scenes <coughs> which were still traceable two centuries later, of which one characteristic fragment remains in sculpture, a lion trampling on a man, which would recall to them the description in their own early annals of Nimrod the mighty hunter. But the most prodigious and unique of all was the Temple of Bel which may well have seemed to them the completion of that proud tower whose top was to reach to heaven. <coughs> it was the central point of all. It gave its name to the whole place, Bab-El, or Bab-Bel, the gate of God, or Bel, <coughs> which by the quiet humor of primitive times had been turned to the Hebrew word <coughs> Babel, or confusion. <coughs> It was the most remarkable of all those artificial mountains or beacons which, towering over the plains of Mesopotamia, guide the traveller's eye like giant pillars. <coughs> it rose like the great pyramid, square upon square, and was believed to have reached the height of 600 feet. Its base was a square of 200 yards. No other edifice consecrated to worship, not Karnak in, in Egyptian Thebes, nor Byzantine St. Sophia, <coughs> nor Gothic Cluny, nor St. Peter's of Rome, have reached the grandeur of this primeval sanctuary, casting its shadow far and wide over city and plain. Thither, as to the most sacred and impregnable fortress, were believed to have been transported the huge brazen laver, the precious brazen pillars, and all the lesser vessels of the Temple of Jerusalem, together, doubtless, with all the other like, sa like sacred spoils, which Bab <coughs> Babylonian conquest had swept from Egypt, Tyre, Damascus, or Nineveh. And when from the silver shrine at the summit of this building the whole mass of mingled verdure and habitation for miles and miles was overlooked. Who was wanting in grace, or what was wanting in grace or proportion must have been compensated by the extraordinary richness of colour. <clears throat> Some faint conception of this may be given by the view of Moscow from the Kremlin over the blue, green and gilded domes and towers springing from the gardens which fill up the vacant intervals of that most oriental of European capitals. <coughs> but neither that view nor any other can give a notion of the vastness of the variegated landscape of Babylon as seen from any of its elevated points. Apologize. <coughs> Thank <clears throat> you.
From the earliest times of the city, as we have seen, the two materials of, it, of its architecture were the bricks baked from the plains on which it stood and the plaster fetched from the bitumen springs of Hit. But these homely materials were made to yield effects as bright and varied as porcelain or metal. <clears throat> the several stages of the temple itself were black, orange, crimson, gold, <clears throat> deep yellow, brilliant blue, and silver. The white or pale brown of the houses, wherever the natural color of the bricks was left, must have been strikingly contrasted with the rainbow hues with which most of them were painted, according to the fancy of their owners, <clears throat> while all the intervening spaces were filled with the variety of gigantic palms in the gardens or the thick jungles or luxuriant groves by the silvery lines of the canals. Or in the early spring, the carpet of brilliant flowers that covered the illimitable plain without the walls, or the sea of waving corn both within and without, which burst from the teeming soil with a produce so plentiful that the Grecian traveller <coughs> dare not risk his credit by stating its enormous magnitude. <coughs> when from the outward show we descend to the inner life of the place, Babylon may well indeed to the secluded Israelite <coughs> have seemed to be that of which to all subsequent ages it has been taken as the type, the world itself. No doubt there was in Jerusalem and Samaria, especially since the days of Solomon, a little hierarchy and aristocracy and court <coughs> with its factions, feasts and fashions. But nowhere else in Asia, hardly even in Egypt, could have been seen the magnificent cavalry careering through the streets the chariots and four, chariots like whirlwinds, horses swifter than eagles, horses and chariots and horsemen and companies with spears and burnished helmets. Nowhere else could have been imagined the long muster roll as of a peerage that passes in long procession before the eye of the Israelite captive, the satraps, captains, parshas, the chief judges, treasurers, judges, counsellors, and all the rulers of the province provinces, their splendid costumes of scarlet, their party-coloured sashes, all of them princes to look to, their elaborate armour, buckler and shield and helmet, and their breastplates, their bows and quivers and battle axes, marked out to every eye the power and grandeur of the army. Nowhere was science or art so visibly exalted as in the magicians and the astrologers and the sorcerers and the, wild, uh, the wise Chaldeans who were expected to unravel all the secrets of nature and who, in point of fact, from those wide level plains where the, eye, where the entire celestial hemisphere is continually visible to every eye and where the clear transparent atmosphere shows night after night the heavens gemmed with countless stars of undimmed brilliancy had laid the first foundations of astronomy mingled as it was with the speculations then deemed pregnant with yet deeper significance of astrology. Far in advance of the philosophy as yet unborn of Greece, in advance even of the ancient philosophy of Egypt, the Chaldeans long represented to both those nations the highest flights of human intellect, even as the majestic temples 
which served to them at once as college and observatory, observatory <coughs> towered above the buildings of the then known world. Twice over in the biblical history, once on the heights of Zophim, once beside the cradle of Bethlehem, do the stargazers of Chaldea lay claim to be at once the precursors of divine revelation and the representatives of superhuman science. Returning to the ordinary life of the place, its gay scenes of luxury and pomp were stamped on the memory of the Israelites by the constant clash and concert, again and again resounding, of the musical instruments in which the Babylonians delighted, and of which the mingled Greek and Asiatic names are faintly indicated by the British catalogue of cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music. Nor could they forget how, like the Athenian exiles in later days in Syracuse, their artistical masters besought them to take their own harps and sing one of the songs of their distant mountain city. <clears throat> Though, unlike those prisoners who gladly recited to their kindred enemies the tragedies of their own Euripides, they could not bring themselves to waste on that foreign land the melody which belonged only to their divine master. Yet one more feature peculiar for Chaldea, both natural and social, is recalled by the scene of that touching dialogue between the captors and the captives. The trees on which their harps were hung were unlike any that they knew in their own country. They called them by the name that seemed nearest to the willows of their own watercourses. But they were, in fact, the branching poplars mingled with the tamarisks, which still cluster beside the streams of Mesopotamia, and of which one solitary and venerable specimen long survived on the ruins of Babylon, and in the gentle waving of its green boughs sent forth a melancholy rustling sound, such as in after times chimed in with the universal desolation of the spot, and such as in the ears of the Israelites might have seemed to echo their own mournful thoughts. The waters by which they wept were the rivers of Babylon, the river, that word was of unknown or almost unknown sound to those who had seen only the scanty, scanty torrent beds of Judea or the narrow rapids of the Jordan. The river in the mouth of an Israelite meant almost always the gigantic Euphrates, the fourth river of the primeval garden of the earth, the boundary of waters from beyond which their forefathers had come. And now, after parting from it for many centuries, they once more found themselves on its banks. Not one river only, but literally, as the psalmist calls it, rivers. For by the wonderful system of irrigation, which was the life of the whole region, it was diverted into separate canals, each of which was itself a river, the source and support of the gardens and palaces which clustered along the water's edge. And the country far and near was intersected with these branches of the mighty stream. One of them was so vast as to bear then the name which it even bears to this day of the Egyptian Nile. On the banks of the main channel of the river, all the streets abutted, all the gates opened. And immediately on leaving the city, it opened into that vast lake or estuary which made the surrounding tract itself the desert of the sea. The great sea tossed by the four winds of heaven and teeming with the monster shapes of earth the sea on which floated innumerable boats or ships, as the junks at Canton or the gondolas at Venice 
or even as the vast shipping at our own renowned seaports. Of the great waters, such as the monumental inscription of Nebuchadnezzar, like the waters of the ocean, I made use abundantly. Their depths were like the depths of the vast ocean. The inland city was thus converted into a city of merchants, a magnificent empire into a land of traffic. The cry, the stir, the gaiety of the Chaldeans was not in the streets or gardens of Babylon, but in the ships. Down the Euphrates came floating from the bitumen pits of Hit the cement which, uh, with which its foundations were covered. And from Kurdistan and Armenia, huge blocks of basalt, from Phoenicia, gems and wine, perhaps its tin from Cornwall. Up its course came from Arabia and from India the dogs for their sports, the costly wood for their stately walking staves, the frankincense for their worship. When in far later days the name of Babylon was transferred to the West to indicate the imperial city which had taken its place in the eyes of the Jewish exiles at that time, the recollection of the traffic of the Euphrates had lived on with so fresh a memory that this characteristic feature of the Mesopotamian city was transplanted to its Italian substitute, Rome. Nothing could be less applicable to the inland capital on the banks of the narrow Tiber. But so deeply had this imagery of the ancient Babylon become a part of the idea of secular grandeur, that it was transferred without a shock to that new representative of the world. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and of fine linen, purple and silk and scarlet, and all wood of incense and all manner of vessels of ivory, all manner of vessels of most precious wood, and of brass and of iron and marble and cinnamon, and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men, the shipmasters and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as, as trade by sea and the craftsmen and the merchants who were the great men of the earth. And over this vast world of power, splendor, science, art and commerce, presided a genius worthy of it, so at least the Israelite tradition represented him, the head of gold, whose brightness was excellent, the tree whose height reached to heaven, and the sight thereof to the end of all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in it meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches <coughs> the fowls of the air had their habitations. He whose reign reached over one half of the whole period of the empire, he who was the last conqueror among the primeval monarchies, as Nimrod had been the first, the lord of the then known historical world from Greece to India, was the favorite of Nebo, who, when he looked on his vast constructions, might truly say, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of my kingdom? by the might of my power, and for the honor of my majesty. Well, now that's an account of Babylon that's based wholly upon old <coughs> documents and eye accounts by Herodotus, Theseus, and quite a few others. <coughs> now I'm afraid you're going to have to put up with my wavering voice now. 
I'm going to read now an account by Professor Harrison, which is based not upon uh, eyewitness accounts only, but also upon uh, archaeological dis uh, research and discoveries. <coughs> but the most immediate problem was that of adaptation to the new environment, that is, the exiles who have gone. Magnificent buildings and spacious cities of Mesopotamia made the temple and the capital city of Jerusalem appear paltry and insignificant by comparison. The open plains and fertile soil stood in marked contrast to the rocky crags and indifferent arable land of Judah, whilst the general prosperity and opulence of contemporary Mesopotamia must have aroused many wistful recollections of the departed glory of Judah in the minds of the older captives. The Chaldean regime was at its height, and Nebuchadnezzar was busily engaged in building operations in order to beautify his empire. Although he was renowned as a military strategist, Nebuchadnezzar appears to have been more interested in culture and the pursuit of peaceful arts than in extensive military conquests. The royal inscriptions which date from his reign depicted the splendor and the magnificence of Babylonia during the New Empire period, and these accounts have been substantiated by the Greek historian Herodotus and other writers. Particular efforts were directed towards reconstructing and enlarging the capital city of Babylon, making it the most splendid city in the entire Near East. It was built on both sides of the river Euphrates and surrounded by a double wall of defensive fortifications, which, according to Herodotus, enclosed an area of 200 square miles. Of this, nearly nine-tenths consisted of parks, fields, and gardens, and the remainder was occupied by temples, public buildings, and private houses. The city walls were lofty and were defended by 250 towers placed at strategic intervals. Of the numerous gates which gave access to the city, one of the most famous was the huge double gate dedicated to Ishtar. It led to the wide processional street whose walls were elaborately decorated with enameled figures of bulls and dragons. The two portions of the city were intersected in all directions by a network of navigable waterways and canals. To the east of a great bridge built to connect the two halls of Babylon, was the magnificent palace of Nebuchadnezzar, which contained the celebrated hanging gardens. These masonry terraces were regarded by the Greeks as constituting one of the seven wonders of the world, and although they cannot now be identified with any certainty, they were supposed to have been built in the form of a square, whose sides were about 400 feet in length and raised on arches to a height of 75 feet. <clears throat> Other ziggurats and temples which Nebuchadnezzar restored, the most impressive was the enormous temple of Marduk, whose stepped tiers and lofty dimensions required an advanced degree of engineering and constructional skill. It was for such enterprises as these that Nebuchadnezzar required skilled labor in abundance. Whilst a great many specialized workmen were imported for the construction projects, the majority of those who helped to carry them out were slaves who had been brought as captives to Babylon. Amongst these were the Judean exiles who were settled in colonies in Babylonia, one of which was at Tel Abib, near the river Kiba, 
Cuneiform sources indicate that the latter was the Kaaba Canal in central Babylonia, which ran between Babylon and Nippur. Although the Babylonians had taken Jehoiakim into captivity and had established his uncle Zedekiah as regent in the devastated southern kingdom of Judah, it is clear that they still regarded the exiled king as the rightful sovereign of the country. Excavations at the Ishtar Gate in Babylon uncovered tablets, to which reference has already been made in the preceding chapter, showing that Jehoiakim, Yaokin, king of the land of Yahud, and his household were recipients of royal bounty, as indicated in the Book of Kings. But whilst the Babylonian captors showed deference to the exiled ruler and his family, they treated the remainder of the Judean captives in the same manner as other expatriate groups in Babylon. The inferior classes merely exchanged civility in Judah for enslavement in Mesopotamia. And whilst the Babylonians and Chaldeans were in general good-natured and tolerant, there is some reason for believing that the common people suffered harsh treatment whilst labouring to beautify the imperial cities as Isaiah had predicted in chapter 47 and verse 6. But those of the exiles who had enjoyed a higher social status in Judah were accorded a number of privileges and were permitted limited freedom in choosing employment. The thriving economy of the new Babylonian empire presented almost unlimited opportunity, opportunities for enterprising individuals and the Babylonians made no attempt to hinder any of the Judean exiles from rising in a proper manner to positions of prominence and responsibility. In consequence, men like Daniel, Nehemiah, came to exercise important functions in government circles, whilst lesser individuals who lived near busy commercial centers, such as Nippur, had every opportunity for amassing wealth and property. Whilst, therefore, the Babylonian captivity cannot be compared for severity with the oppression in Egypt, there were certain features of a somber character which impressed themselves upon the minds of the exiled Judeans, or Jews, as they became known about this time. Although the colorful life of the new Babylonian empire had its attractions from a material point of view, there still remained the inescapable fact that the once proud inhabitants of the chosen were now exiles amongst the strange people. However well they might have been treated by the Babylonians, the Jews could never forget that they had been dealt a severe blow by the captivity. But just as the prophetic message had sounded dire warnings in earlier days, so now it provided a reminder of the, of the status which the captives were to occupy and the prospects which would confront them during the next few decades. The prophet Jeremiah had written to the exiles from Jerusalem, Jeremiah 25, stating that God had delivered his people into the power of the Babylonians as a punishment for their iniquity. The sojourn in Babylon would last for 70 years, after which God would bring the faithful Jews back to their native land. Because of these conditions, Jeremiah counseled the captives to accept the divine sentence with the best grace which they could muster, and attempt to learn the spiritual lessons which it was intended to convey. To this end, he advised them to settle down in their unfamiliar surroundings, to marry, cultivate the land which had been assigned to them. They were to live peaceably with their pagan neighbours, and to work for the day when God would hear their prayers and restore them to their homeland. 
If there arose from amongst them, said Jeremiah, men who claimed to be prophets of the Lord, but who uttered words of dissension and discontent, they were false prophets and were to be repudiated by the exiles. Any resistance to the idea of captivity would be construed as rebellion against the revealed will of God and would only evoke further punishment. To those Judeans who interpreted the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in terms of the failure or inability of the Lord to protect his people, this letter must have had a bitter and ironic sound. In a time of dire emergency, their God, they felt, had been tried and found wanting. And this proclamation merely served to add insult to their injury. For them, the future could only be one of religious agnosticism. And no utterance of priest or prophet, however piously or forcefully it was framed, could again have any real meaning for their existence. Material prosperity alone could temper the despair which they were experiencing and provide some service for their disillusioned and bewildered minds. <coughs> Others, whose religious outlook was more enlightened, were still reeling from the shock of captivity when the letter of Jeremiah was made known to them. They found it very hard to believe that God had punished his people in the severe manner long promised by the prophets, and they were living in hopes of an early return to the homeland. For them, Jeremiah's letter must have been a profoundly depressing affair since it dispelled once and for all any hopes which the captives might have had of seeing the land of Judah in the near future. For those exiles whose faith in the justice and mercy of the Lord had survived the grim ordeal of deportation to a foreign country, the letter of the prophet came as a further revelation of the divine will and as a challenge to belief and hope. Whereas formerly God had predicted punishment and doom for his people, he was now assuring them of forgiveness and restoration in due time. The bitter experience of exile was meant to induce the spirit of true penitence for the iniquity of earlier days and to foster the growth of a religious outlook which was in harmony with the nature of God as revealed in the Mosaic Covenant. But not even an appreciation of the moral and spiritual implications of captivity could prevent those feelings of discouragement, sadness, nostalgia, which from time to time overtake all exiles in every age. The depths of pathos found their fullest expression, naturally enough, in the poetry of a sorrowing nation, and some of the most beautiful of the Hebrew psalms emerged from this sad period. To these unhappy and discouraged people, a message of hope and deliverance was brought by the prophet Ezekiel. A younger contemporary of Jeremiah and Daniel he was a priestly stock and had been carried into captivity with King Jehoiakim in 597. He lived amongst a colony of Jews at Tel Aviv on the Kaaba Canal, and he began to prophesy some five years after his captivity. Recapturing something of the spirit of Jeremiah, he pointed out to the exiles the underlying causes of the disaster which had overtaken Judah roundly condemned the wickedness and idolatry of his fellow countrymen. The versatility of Ezekiel made it possible for him to act as prophet, priest, and pastor to the exiled community. His consciousness of vocation is strongly reminiscent of the prophetic tradition of Jeremiah, by whose teachings he'd been influenced prior to the fall of Jerusalem. Although his message seldom appealed to the majority of the exiles, his integrity and sincerity 
won for him the admiration of the Jewish elders. And his eloquence carried his utterances far beyond the limited audience to which they were addressed. He surveyed in retrospect the history of the nation in order to discern the lessons which the past could teach. Like Jeremiah, he insisted upon the sovereignty and omnipotence of the God of Israel, who in righteous indignation had delivered his people for a time into captivity. Like him, he also taught that national renewal would only begin when integrity of character and motive became the supreme concern of all religious activity. As the, decade, as the decades passed, this ideal was accomplished to an increasing extent. And when the prospect of a return to Palestine became a distinct probability, the morale of the faithful remnant rose to new heights. <laughs> Expectation of deliverance coincided with significant political developments in the Babylonian Empire, with the rise to power of the Medes and Persians in Mesopotamia. For those Jews who had become captivated with the splendors of cosmopolitan Babylon and had risen to positions of political and social prominence, the prospect of a return to desolation and penury was far attractive. But comparatively few of these shared the spiritual ideals of the righteous remnant, and being satisfied with their current state of material prosperity, they showed little indication of abandoning it, abandoning it for the doubtful privilege of rebuilding an impoverished nation in the ancestral homeland. The worldly success to which some of the Jewish exiles, which we'll read an account of that in a few moments, had attained in the Babylonian Empire encouraged a degree of assimilation with the Mesopotamian peoples and an abandonment of those ideals which were implicit in the Mosaic Covenant. In consequence, these Jews preferred to remain behind in Babylonia when the opportunity for a return to Palestine was given to the captive Jewish community. The great wealth and prosperity of the new Babylonian Empire continued throughout the reign of Nebuchadnezzar II, and his proud boast, as recorded in Daniel chapter 4 and 30, was certainly in keeping with his ambitious building schemes. His interests also extended to some of the old Sumerian cities, and at Ur he restored the huge complex of the Temple of Nana, remodeling it and raising the level of the outer court. This work appears to be undertaken in the spirit of religious reformation, which places the account, now listen to this, of the image worship in Daniel, chapter 3, in a new perspective. Woolley discovered that the rooms which the sacred prostitutes and priestesses had occupied near the sanctuary had been removed completely during the Restoration. A space had been cleared in front of the sanctuary and an altar had been set up in full view of the worshippers so that they could observe the priest as he made his offerings in public on the altar. This was a distinct departure from earlier procedures since the ritual acts of the ministrant were secrets known only to the priesthood. It seems clear that Nebuchadnezzar had initiated a program of religious reform which sought to modify the sensuous rituals of antiquity and permit the worshipping public to participate as a group in the sacrificial offerings. This reform of ritual is reflected in the third chapter of Daniel, 
which recorded a decree ordering the populace to worship an image of the king. This monument had been set up in the plain of Jura, and all had ready access to it, as Woolley comments. What was there new in the king's act? Not the setting up of a statue, because each king in turn had done the same. The novelty was the command for general worship by the public. For a ritual performed by priests, the king is substituting a form of congregational worship which all his subjects are obliged to attend. It's rather like modern Japanese Shinto uh, worship, the worship of the emperor. As might be expected, contemporary Babylonian historical records made no mention of the mental affliction which, according to the book, of Daniel overtook Nebuchadnezzar towards the end of his life. The illness in question, I've never heard of this, the illness in question, which was a rare form of monomania, known as anthropy, must have been a source of perplexity and embarrassment to official circles. It was only after three centuries that a Babylonian priest, Barossus by name, recorded a tradition which said that Nebuchadnezzar was suddenly taken ill towards the end of his reign. Eusebius, in the 4th century after Christ, quoted a different account which related that the king suddenly disappeared after predicting the downfall of his empire. This tradition appears to be a garbled reflection of the narrative in Daniel chapter 4 and may have been preserved in that form to conceal the presence of mental derangement which was held in universal awe and dread in antiquity. When Nebuchadnezzar died in 562, he was succeeded by his son, Arnold Marduk, who is called evil Merodach in Kings. With his accession, the power of the empire waned, and after two years, he was murdered by his brother-in-law, Nereglizar, who reigned for four years. In 556, his son occupied the throne for a few months, but he too was killed in a conspiracy, and one of his murderers, Nabonidus, succeeded him. He reigned until 539 BC and was the last monarch of the new Babylonian Empire. He was a man of considerable culture and was particularly interested in archaeological pursuits. He dispatched his scribes throughout Mesopotamia to collect ancient inscriptions from widely divergent sources and ordered names and dates of Mesopotamian kings to be compiled. There is some reason for thinking that his mother had been a priestess in the temple of the moon god at Haran. And this may have influenced Nabonidus to become a religious antiquary. <clears throat> he was the last Babylonian ruler to attempt repairs to the ziggurat of the moon deity at Ur. And when his restorations were completed, he installed his own daughter there as the high priestess. She apparently collected a number of artifacts from an earlier period and maintained a small museum of local antiquities, part of which was unearthed by Woolley. For most of his reign, Nabonidus shared the rule of the empire with his eldest son, Belshazzar, to whom in 553 he committed much of his regal authority before setting out on a campaign against Timur in Arabia. When he had conquered the city, he took up his residence there, and according to Nabonidus' chronicle, he erected lavish buildings comparable to those in, Mab in Babylon. Nabonidus lived in Arabia for a number of years, during which time Belshazzar was the sole ruler in Babylon. For this reason, he was represented, now listen to this carefully, he was represented in the book of Daniel, chapter 5, verse 30, as the last king of Babylon. 
the reference in Daniel chapter 5, 18 to Belshazzar as a son of Nebuchadnezzar is also correct according to Semitic usage, which, especially where royalty was concerned, was more interested in succession than in the actual lineal relationship of individuals. Nidukris, the mother of Belshazzar, was apparently the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, and since the Semites often use the terms son and grandson interchangeably, it would still be correct to speak of Belshazzar as the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Declining power of the new Babylonian Empire encouraged the rise of an energetic Persian ruler, Cyrus II, who succeeded his father, Cambyses I, about the year 559 BC as ruler of Anshan. He rapidly united the people of this vassal state of Media, and in 549, he revolted against Astyages, his suzerain. After a short time, he conquered him in battle, and thus Cyrus fell heir to the Medo-Persian Empire. So great was his potential strength that an alliance was hurriedly formed against him. Those who participated were Croesus, king of Lydia, Asia Minor, the fabulously wealthy king who is credited with having invented coinage, Nabonidus of Babylon, and Amasus, the pharaoh of Egypt. In 546, Cyrus attacked the forces of Croesus and defeated him, thereby gaining control of the whole of Asia Minor. His next thrust was Babylon itself, and the Cyrus cylinder recorded the way in which Marduk, the patron deity, assisted the subsequent victory. Marduk, to his city Babylon, he caused him to go. He made him to take the road to Babylon, going as a friend and companion at his side. Without battle and conflict, he permitted him to enter Babylon. He spared his city Babylon, calamity. Cyrus is said to have diverted the course of the river Euphrates in his assault on the capital city, so that his troops entered Babylon along the bed of the river. At all events, Babylon fell to the Persian forces in 538 BC, and the Chaldean army under Belshazzar was routed. With the conquest of Babylon, Cyrus was the ruler of the largest empire that the world had known, and during the reign of his son, the influence of Persia was to extend as far west as Egypt. And I've kept the most interesting account till last, because I thought that if you were all bored, you might at least find Werner Keller's account the most interesting of all. Certainly, it comes down to a lot of practicality. You'll have to forgive me if I pronounce some of these words. I'm no expert in Babylonian or you know, in that part of the world. In 1899, the German Oriental Society equipped a large expedition under the direction of Professor Robert Coldwey, the architect, to examine the famous ruined mound of Babel on the Euphrates. The excavations, as it turned out, took longer than anywhere else. In 18 years, the most famous metropolis of the ancient world, the royal seat of Nebuchadnezzar, was brought to light. And at the same time, one of the seven wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens, loudly extolled by Greek travellers of a later day, and E. Timon Anki, the legendary tower of Babel. In the palace of Nebuchadnezzar, and on the Ishtar Gate, which was situated beside it, countless inscriptions were discovered. Nevertheless, the scholars were conscious of a certain disappointment. 
In contrast to the detailed records of Assyrian rulers, in which the names and fortunes of the kings of Israel and Judah were frequently given a historical setting, the Neo-Babylonian records hardly mention anything apart from the religious and architectural events of the day. <coughs> they contain, for example, no corroboration of the fate of Judah. Thirty years later, when the great finds at Babel had long since found their way into archives and museums, there emerged a number of unique documents from the immediate neighborhood of the Ishtar Gate in Berlin. On Museum Island, in the middle of the Spray, in the heart of the German capital, the wonderful Ishtar Gate from Babylon had been reconstructed in the great central court of the Kaiser-Friedrich Museum. Menacing and sinister, the bright yellow bodies of the long row of lions stood out against the deep blue of the glazed tiles on the processional way of marble. As it had done by the Euphrates, so now it led astonished citizens of the 20th century to the splendid gate dedicated to the goddess Ishtar with its dragons and wild oxen. I read that because it's just a little uh, introduction to the rest. Now, a little more. He quotes from Jeremiah in this uh, as an example of how the word of God is absolute. Of course, Bernard Keller's not a Christian. You realize that, don't you? And uh, at least we don't believe that he is. He himself says that he is not a fundamentalist. Build ye houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat the fruit of them, that ye may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captive. So wrote the prophet Jeremiah from Jerusalem to the elders, priests, prophets, and to the whole nation that at Nebuchadnezzar's bidding had been carried off to Babylon. Following his well-considered advice, they sought and found the peace of the city and did not fare at all badly. The exile in Babylon was not to be compared with the harsh existence of the children of Israel on the Nile, and Python and Ramses in the days of Moses. Apart from a few exceptions, there was no heavy forced labor. Nowhere is there any mention of their having to make bricks by the Euphrates. Yet Babylon ran what was probably the greatest brick-making industry in the world at the time. For never was there so much building going on in Mesopotamia as under Nebuchadnezzar. Anyone who took Jeremiah's advice as his guide got on well, some indeed very well. One family, which had made the grade, has left to posterity its dust-covered business documents on clay. Morashu and Sons, International Bank, Insurance, Conveyancing, Loans, Personal and Real Estate, Head Office, Nippur, Branches Everywhere. <laughs> A firm with a reputation throughout the world, the Lloyds of Mesopotamia. The Morashus, displaced persons from Jerusalem, had done well for themselves in Nippur since 587 BC. They were an old established office. Their firm still stood for something in Mesopotamia, even in the Persian era. The books of Morashu and Sons are full of detailed information about the life of the exiles, such as their names, their occupations, their property. Scholars from the University of Pennsylvania discovered some of the Jewish firm's deeds stored in its former business premises in Nippur. They were in great clay jars, which in accordance with security precautions in those days, had been carefully sealed with asphalt. 
It was not only Assyriologists who read the translations of these documents with delight. The offices of Morashu and Sons were a hive of activity. For 150 years, they enjoyed the confidence of their clients, whether it was a matter of conveyance of large estates, or sections of the canals, or of slaves. Anyone who could not write when he came eventually to add his signature put, instead of his name, the print of his fingernail on the documents. It corresponded to putting a cross in the presence of witnesses, as in the case of illiterates today. One day, three jewellers called on Morashu and Sons. Elil, Aha, Idina, and Belsunu and Hatim said to Elil Nadim Sum, son of Morashu, in the case of this emerald ring, we give a 20 years guarantee that the stone will not fall out of the gold. If the emerald falls out of the ring before the expiry of 20 years, Elilaha Idina, Belsuno, and Hartin undertake to pay damages to Elil Nadin's sum amounting to 10 minas of silver. The document is signed by seven people. Before the lawyer's name, the clay bears the imprint of three fingernails. These are the signatures of three jewelers who were unable to write. An exiled Jew, or oh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Manudanijama, came to Morashu and Sons because he wanted to arrange a deed of conveyance with a Babylonian concerning an important herd of cattle. 13 old rams, 27 two-year-old rams, 152 lamb ewes, 40-year-old rams, 40-year-old ewe lambs, an old he-goat, a two-year-old he-goat, <laughs> a total of 276 white and black, large and small sheep and goats. Cash on delivery. Manu Dan Nijima to be responsible for pasture, feeding and safe custody. Naipur, the 25th of all, signed fingernail of Manu Dan <laughs> Securities for those imprisoned for debt were deposited with the bank. There were special departments for all eventualities of life. The rate of interest was 20%, not introduced by Morashu, let it be said. That was the normal rate in those days. Morashu and Sons may serve as an example of the profession which since the days of the exile has been associated with the children of Israel. It became for them the profession par excellence and has remained so until now, that of merchant and trader. In their homeland, they had only been peasants, settlers, cattle breeders, and tradesmen. The law of Israel had made no provision for commerce. It was an alien occupation. The word Canaanite was for them synonymous with shopkeeper, merchant, people whom the prophets had vigorously castigated for their sins. He is a merchant. The balances of deceit are in his hand. He loves to oppress, said Hosea and Amos. The switch over to this hitherto forbidden profession was extremely clever, a fact that is seldom properly understood, for it proved to be in the last resort, when added to a tenacious attachment to their old faith, the best guarantee of the continuance of Israel as a people. As farmers and settlers scattered throughout a foreign land, they would have intermarried, interbred with the people of other races, and in a few generations would have been absorbed and disappeared. This new profession demanded that their houses should be in more or less large societies within which they could build themselves into a community and devote themselves to their religious practices. It gave them cohesion and continuity. The Israelites could have chosen no better training college. Babylon, 
as an international center of trade, industry, and commerce, was the great school for the cities and capitals of the whole world, which from then on were to become the home of the homeless. The metropolis, whose ruins after 2,500 years still betray its ancient power and glory, had no equal in the ancient world. Sixty miles south of busy Baghdad, the desert is churned up, scarred, and furrowed. As far as the eye can see, there stretches a maze of trenches, rubble heaps, and pits, which bear witness to the efforts of German archaeologists over a period of 18 years. As a result of this prolonged campaign, Professor Robert Caldway has been able to bring to light the famous Babylon of the Bible. Scarcely 40 years after the excavations, the site presents a dismal and chaotic appearance. Wind and desert, sand, are slowly but relentlessly covering up again the gigantic skeleton of the old metropolis. Only on one side a few block-like towers stand out with sharply defined silhouette against the sky. Their brick walls, once brightly tiled, are bleak and bare. Here at the Ishtar Gate began the long processional way. Where it ends, a massive hump on the other side of the city proclaims the presence of the one of the greatest edifices of the ancient world, the Tower of Babel. The pomp and glory, the power and might of the city which sinned against the Lord were all destroyed and disappeared. It was never again inhabited. Could the oracle of the prophet Isaiah be more completely fulfilled? Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. But wild beasts of the desert shall lie there, and their houses shall be full of doleful creatures, and ostriches shall dwell there, and wolves shall cry in their castles, and jackals in the pleasant palaces, Isaiah 13. It's a long time now since the site was deserted even by jackals and owls, and more so by ostriches. Even the mighty Euphrates has turned its back on it and has chosen a new riverbed. Once upon a time, the arrogant walls of the city and the lofty tower were reflected in its waters. Now a silhouette of palm trees in the distance indicates its new course. The little Arab settlement of Babel preserves in its name the memory of the proud city, but it lies some miles north of the ruins. Babylon Halt is written in Arabic and English on the signboard of the station on the Baghdad Railway, which lies a few hundred yards from the mound and allows the visitor a rare occasion these days to make a tour of the desolate yellowish-brown ruins. Here he is surrounded by the silent stillness of utter solitude. The ruins preserved as their most precious treasure documents of incomparable value. It is thanks to them that we are able today to reconstruct an accurate picture of the time of the Jewish exile, which was also the period of Babylon's greatest prosperity. Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the, of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? Daniel chapter 4. These words which Daniel puts into the mouth of the king Nebuchadnezzar do not exaggerate. Hardly any other monarch in the past was such an assiduous builder. There is scarcely any mention of warlike activities, conquests, and campaigns. In the forefront there is the constant building activity of Nebuchadnezzar. Hundreds of thousands of bricks bear his name, and the plans of many of the buildings have been preserved. Babylon, in fact, surpassed all the cities of the ancient Orient. It was greater than Thebes, Memphis, and Ur, greater even than Nineveh. 
The center of the city, which is full of three and four-storied buildings, is traversed by dead straight streets, not only those that run parallel to the river, but also the cross streets which lead down to the waterside. So Herodotus described what he himself had seen. The town plan of Babylon is reminiscent of the blueprints for large American cities. Coming from, pa from Palestine, even from proud Jerusalem, the exiles had only known narrow, twisting streets little better than alleys. In Babylon, however, they made the acquaintance of streets as broad as avenues and as straight as if they'd been drawn with a ruler. Every one of them bore the name of one of the gods in the Babylonian pantheon. There was a Marduk street and there was a Barber street on the left bank of the river. In the right-hand corner of the city, they crossed the streets of the moon god Sin and of Enlil, the lord of the world. On the right bank, Adad Street ran from east to west and intersected the street of the sun god, Shamash Street. Babylon was not only a commercial but a religious metropolis, as can be seen from an inscription. Altogether, there are in Babylon 53 temples of the chief gods, 55 chapels of Marduk, 300 chapels for the earthly deities, 600 for the heavenly deities, 180 altars for the goddess Ishtar, 180 for the gods Nergal and Adad, and 12 other altars of different gods. Polytheism of this kind, with worship and ritual which extended to public prostitution, must have given the city, in terms of the present day, the appearance of an annual fair. But the most vicious practice of the Babylonians is the following, writes Herodotus, in shocked astonishment. Every woman in the country must take her seat in the shrine of Aphrodite and once in her life consort with a stranger. And only when she's been with him and done her service to the goddess is she allowed to go home. And from then on, no gift is great enough to tempt her. The abominable temptations and enticements, which were part of everyday life in Babylon, remained indelibly fixed in the minds of the exiled Jews. Through the centuries until the time of Christ, the brilliant metropolis was for them Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. The idea of Babylon as a cesspool of vice is rooted in the vocabulary of every modern language. The German archaeologists had to clear away over a million cubic feet of rubble before they had exposed part of the Temple of Marduk on the Euphrates, which had been rebuilt under Nebuchadnezzar. The structure, including its outbuildings, measured approximately 1,500 feet by 1,800 feet. Opposite the temple rose the ziggurat, the Tower of Marduk Sanctuary. Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime had they for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make a name. Genesis chapter 11. The bricklaying technique described in the Bible at the building of the Tower of Babel corresponds with the findings of the archaeologists. As the investigations confirmed, actually only asphalted bricks were used in the construction, especially in the foundations. That was clearly necessary for the security of the structure in accordance with building regulations. In the neighborhood of the river, the regular rise of the in the level of the water and the constant dampness of the ground had to be borne in mind. Foundations and stonework were therefore made waterproof and damp-proof with slime, that is, asphalt. The account of the building of the Tower of Babel is given in the book of Genesis and comes before the days of the patriarchs. Abraham lived, as we can gather from what has been discovered at Mari, in the 19th century. Is this a contradiction? 
The history of the tower whose top may reach unto heaven points back into the dim past. More than once it had been destroyed and rebuilt. Nebuchadnezzar had restored it. Seven stages, seven squares rose one above the other. A little tablet belonging to an architect which was found in the temple expressly mentions that length, breadth and height were equal and that only the terraces had different measurements. This is the timetable. The length of the sides at the base is given as being rather more than 290 feet. The archaeologists measured it as 295 feet. According to that, the tower must have been almost 300 feet high. The Tower of Babel was also involved in dubious religious rites. Herodotus describes them. On the topmost tower there is a spacious temple, and inside the temple stands a couch of unusual size, richly adorned, with a golden table by its side. There is no statue of any kind set up in the place, nor is the chamber occupied at nights by anyone but a single native woman, who, as the Chaldean, as the, Chaldean the priests of this god affirm, is chosen for himself by the deity out of all the women of the land. They also declare, but I for my part do not believe it, that the god himself comes down into the, into the temple and sleeps upon the couch. This is like the story told by the Egyptians of what takes place in Thebes, where a woman always sleeps in the temple of the Theban Zeus. On the streets and squares between the temples, the chapels and the altars, trade and commerce flourished. Solemn processions, heavily laden caravans, traders, barrows, priests, pilgrims, merchants, surged to and fro, colorful and noisy. Religious life and business life were so closely associated in Babylon's everyday affairs that they often dovetailed into each other, as they did in the temples. What else could the priests do with all the sacrificial animals, all the tithes that were presented daily on the altars, many of them quickly perishable, apart from turning them into money as soon as possible? Just as in Ur, the temple authorities in Babylon ran their own departmental stores and warehouses, they also ran their own banks to invest the re their revenues to the best advantage. Outside the double walls of the city, which were bored enough to allow four-horse chariots to turn on them, lay the chambers of commerce. It was on the riverbank that prices were fixed and exchange rates established for the commodities that arrived by boat. Karum, or the key, was the name the Babylonians gave to what we now call the exchange. As well as taking over the key or exchange from the Babylonians, the old world has also taken over its system of weights and measurements. However much the Jews may have sought the peace of the city and found it, however much they have learned in the cities of Babylonia, however much they, they may have learned in the cities of Babylonia which would profit future generations, broaden their own outlook and raise their standard of living, all of which would benefit future generations in many ways, nevertheless, their heart yearnings for their distant little homeland on the Jordan left them no inward peace. They could not forget the city of David, their beloved Jerusalem. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. These were no empty words. The thousands of them set out on the difficult journey home. They rebuilt their shattered city and the temple of the Lord. Without a passionate longing for the homeland, they had, lo uh, they had lost. That would never have happened. Now just one last page.
and we finish. Nebuchadnezzar too, the last great ruler on the throne of Babylon, was afflicted with this longing for old, forgotten, far-off things. His court chroniclers had to compose inscriptions in old Babylonian, which nobody could either speak or read. Architecture and literature flourished once again amongst the Chaldeans. Observing the sky in the interests of astrology led to undreamt of advances. They were able to predict eclipses of the sun and moon. In the Babylonian school of astronomy, about 750 BC, observations of heavenly bodies were recorded and continued without interruption for over 350 years, the longest series of astronomical observations ever made. The accuracy of their reckoning exceeded that of European astronomers until well into the 18th century. Nabonidus may well have been the first archaeologist in the world. This monarch, the last of the Babylonian rulers, caused ruined shrines and temples to be excavated, old inscriptions to be deciphered and translated. He restored the stage tower of Ur, which had been weakened by age. Princess Belshaltinana, sister of the Belshazzar and the Bible, had the same interests as her father, Nabonidus. Woolley discovered an, in an annex to the temple in Ur, where she'd been priestess, a regular museum with objects which had been found in the southern states of Mesopotamia, probably the earliest museum in the world. She had actually carefully catalogued her collection piece by piece on a clay cylinder. This is, in Woolley's words, the oldest museum catalogue known. One people alone broken up into many parts and at that time scattered far and wide throughout the Fertile Crescent, did not succumb to surfeit or slackness. The children of Israel, descendants of the patriarchs, were filled with eager hope and had a definite end in view. They did not disappear. They found the strength to preserve themselves for new millennia up to the present day. For 1,500 years, mankind's brightest light had come from the Fertile Crescent, the oldest center of civilization since the Stone Age. About 500 BC, the, the darkness fell, imperceptibly but irresistibly, over the lands and peoples who had within them the seed of all that would come after them, but in other lands. That throws a lot of light on the head of gold, doesn't it? A new light was already shining from the mountains of Iran. The Persians were coming. The great Semitic states and Egypt had fulfilled their assignment in history. The most significant and decisive part of man's early existence had helped prepare the ground for the Indo-Germanic kingdoms which gave birth to Europe. From the extreme southeastern tip of the continent, the light traveled farther and farther west. From Greece to Rome, across the barrier of the Alps, across Western Europe, and up to Scandinavia and the British Isles, light from the east. On its way, within a few centuries, new civilizations would appear. Art would reach unimagined heights of beauty and harmony. The human mind, in the philosophy and science of the Greeks, would soar to pinnacles denied to the ancient Orient. On its way, the light would also bring 
the varied, colorful legacy of the ancient Orient, from a practical system of weights and measures to astronomy, it would bring writing, the alphabet, and the Bible. Well, I expected that would be a little bit dry to some, but it's a background. Uh, and if it doesn't leave some impression of Babylon uh, upon you, nothing ever will. Shall we just commit it all to the Lord? Oh, dear Lord Jesus, we do indeed ask that thou wilt have used this time and still use it, Lord, to give us some little understanding of why thou didst take this place, this great city Babylon, as the symbol of this world. Oh, and as, Lord, in the next weeks we study Daniel and what he saw, oh, let so much of this be helpful, we do pray, Lord, to our understanding. May we begin to see something of what came into being uh, with Nebuchadnezzar. Help us, Lord, we pray, to understand what today we are still in. Lord, we commit all this to thee and ask that thou thyself be in charge of us as we go on in these studies. And may the end be, dear Lord, that we have understanding of the times, not in an unbalanced way, Lord, not in a fanatical, excessive way, but an understanding by thy spirit of the times and the character of the age in which we live. We ask it together now, committing one another into thy hands, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ.